Welcome back to the Tech Leaders Talk podcast, where experts and leaders discuss the industry and hard-earned career wisdom with your host, Barry Newkirk. Today's guest is Ted Lemke. Ted is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point and an Operation Desert Storm veteran. Ted has more than 30 years of experience with the Department of Defense and service-specific C4I systems, dating back to 1982 when he worked with a distributed command and control system at the U.S. Army High Technology Testbed. As Chief Technology Officer at IEM, Ted Lemke provides leadership and strategic direction for all IEM business operations and for large, complex IEM projects. Ted has provided executive business management support for IEM's execution of the State of New York's $1 billion housing recovery program after Hurricane Sandy and a $385 million contract with the state of Louisiana addressing recovery from their 2016 floods. Most recently, Ted oversaw a process automation project deployed in 10 different states addressing housing recovery from disasters, emergency rental assistance, and homeowner assistance fund programs. Ted holds a master's degree in environmental science and a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies. I am very pleased to welcome uh, Ted Limke. Ted is both a customer and a friend, and uh, he currently serves as the CIO for a um, very large organization called IEM. Uh, based in North Carolina. So, Ted, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Barry. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad to have you, and uh, we're excited about the conversation today for sure. Um, so, Ted, as we typically uh, love to start conversations like this with senior tech leaders around the country, tell us a little bit about how you grew up, uh, some of the early influences uh, in your life, and um, kind of your up through your education. Yeah, I think... Um I've got an interesting trajectory, as you can tell. I'm not the youngest guy in the room anymore, but it's uh, it goes back to uh, 1977 when I um, was a freshman at West Point. For my undergrad uh, is really where my tech career, if you want to call it that, got started. And uh, well, there was a core uh, requirement to take programming course uh, your first semester, and uh, the computer language was uh, Fortran 77 in 1977. Obviously quite a far cry from where we are today, uh, you know, punch cards and, you know, uh, trudging through the snow to go uh, to the, to the processing uh, building to run your punch cards and get your uh, calculations printed out on a, on a big uh, giant uh, pin printer. But, um, you know, far, like I said, far cry from everything you can do on your smartphone today. But it got, that was the start. It was my first exposure to uh, computers or computing. And uh, fortunately, you know, West Point gives you a good grounding in tech, uh, proved it to me then. And today uh, they still do with the Cadet Corps. And um, that, from that early indoctrination, um, in my first tour in the Army, I actually was assigned at uh, Fort Lewis. I was a military intelligence officer. so. There was a fair amount of tech involved in that over, over the years too, but I ended up uh, in 9th Infantry Division in what they called the High Technology Testbed, which was one of the first attempts at dis distributed command and control using at the time VAX BMS. And um, I've had exposure to probably you know more languages and OSs uh, over the years than many um, also, uh, but that just, I think just makes you a little more rounded, you know, in the, in the tech field ultimately, but, uh, things were still done a lot differently than they are now, obviously. But, um, so that was just, uh, really the, the exposure to the use of tech to do the job better, uh, communicate more effectively. Um, I've always been the kind of person, even at a young age, uh, that I, I just don't like to do things twice. I've got to, do them a third, then I'm really disappointed, uh, you know, uh, in a manual fashion, right? So I guess I kind of gravi gravitated to computing, uh, which is the uh, uh, enemy of redundant work, right? It's just, I mean, it's the expert at redundant work, really, but it's in the enemy of you having to do it with your hands. So that's a good thing. And um, I think the Army and the Air Force at the time, this is in the 80s, early 80s, uh, yeah, we're, we're very much tech leaders. I had a, a, an assignment in the Air Force strategic job uh, after that Fort Lewis engagement um, where some of the first uh, 286 PCs were actually in use, uh, purchased by the Air Force. They've always been a big 
um, lead adopter, as you probably know, and um, definitely using uh, those computers and other things. I was also in the uh, strategic um, imagery interpretation field, and so there was a lot of very highly specialized um, computing equipment to do things with uh, imagery interpretation at the national level, they, you know, way, things way ahead of their time. And the collection platforms uh, that uh, existed um, at the time that were way ahead of their time. And having the exposure to them, uh, dealing with the data, uh, the processing, the visualization, um, definitely uh, had me solidly entrenched by the time I finished up my military. Career. I went off to grad school and, and had, uh, had designs of increasing uh, my tech exposure with environmental work. Got my master's degree in environmental uh, toxicology, but ended up uh, coming uh, while in grad school. I, I was a, literally a student worker. I got a job with IEM, and uh, that was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at the time. Um, went to LSU for my, my grad degree. And um, this, it was interesting because the founder of the company, um, still my boss, Madhu Berrywal, had uh, had a vision of bringing tech into emergency management. And I think, remember at the time this was, um, still at this point in the early 90s, um, you're talking about a, a discipline, emergency management, where a lot of people, the big mission was counting sandbags and water bottles. And they'd never even touched a computer. Um, we, I remember, uh, we used to do some uh, some computer training back in those days, and we had people come in. We're trying to teach them some basic, um, you know, com uh, computer uh, things on a uh, to use the system that the army had, had picked for this program. Um, uh, you know, on the computer, taking the mouse and holding it up in the air, like thinking that it was going to move the cursor. And uh, really, that 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 was that was the baseline, right? And I'll get to probably uh, touch on that point again as we as we talk because uh, it's an interesting one there too. But anyway, um, I I gravitated to that, and it just so happened the company had landed their first uh, large federal contract with the Army Chemical Demilitarization Program, and there were some problems mm. that um, were there for the solving using modeling and simulation, distributed computing, and several things that were you know, newer to the world and uh, doing them at the complicated level that we ended up doing them was very much uh, unique uh, to the world at the time. And we were able to solve some really, uh, really tough problems. And uh, that's what I probably learned to enjoy most in my time in tech is solving tough problems for our customers in a management consulting role. And that can be on many threads because tech means a lot of things, right? It's not just programming. It's not just um, uh, database work and analytics, it, you know, it, and it's, it's, there's the whole hardware aspect of tech too, right? So, uh, but, but the more exposure do you get to a broad base across those things, I think the more you can understand the role that tech really has. It's not the magic bean, but it can very much be a enabler and a combat multiplier, if you will, using the military term, you know, that uh, yep. uh, for getting your job done and, and delivering better, more consistent results for your clientele as well. And I guess um, the one thing that I, is my take home from it all is uh, it's an evolution, right? It's uh, the only thing consistent with tech is change. And today it's even more rapid change. It's just the, it's a, it's the constant, and um, you know what I'm what I'm doing nowadays uh, is very different than where I started in, in that story, and uh, our big ticket items uh, we look at today in terms of moving uh, IEM and the work we do for our customers uh, with the tech we use or are developing. You know now we talk about AI and low code solutions, uh, blockchain, cloud engineered solutions containerized and other and otherwise and that's a uh that's a big leap from just even you know pounding away on your basic pc years ago and but i saw a lot of it you know it's when I, I i used windows when it first came out I, I remember staying up at night late 
with one of uh, one of our tech people at IEM on the Unix box in the little server room we had and waited for um, the World Wide Web to launch at, wow. you know, one second after midnight, whatever date that was, I don't remember off the top of my head, but um, literally, you know, was there. So it, those kinds of things are exciting to me. I think it comes from uh, a lot of my experience and touching so many aspects of tech over the years uh, kind of gets in your blood. Let me let me take you back. So you kind of started at West Point. Um, I want to hear about young Ted and how you really grew up before you got to West Point. I guess I was a always an achiever, and uh, you know I, I fortunately you know got, could get good grades and tested well and do all those things in school that can you know open up paths. And um, I was I was big in sports, played a lot of different sports. Uh, Basketball was probably my big one, but I was, you know, captain of the basketball team. I was, um, I ran, uh, I was on the cross country team. I was on the tennis team. I was, you know, did, did, uh, a lot of different things, um, that were both, uh, leadership oriented, I guess, in a way and, um, collaborative, you know, team oriented. And, uh, when I, uh, when I got, ready to start looking at schools. I, I toured a lot of them like uh, many do and my junior year of uh, high school and West Point and, and the Naval Academy were two potential choices. And I went through the whole uh, interview process for all that. But I was thinking about going to do something in the military from the time I was about nine or 10 years old. And uh, no particular reason for that. I, I had no military history in my family either side and um, going back. And uh, it, it just was something. I remember the one thing, uh, I was a reader, a big book reader. And, and uh, I joined using my own money back then, you know, came from things like paper routes. Um, I joined a, a, a thing called the, the Military Book Club. And uh, each month I'd get a one or two, I don't remember, one or two books, right? And um, I remember some of the titles even today. Two Ocean War was one of them. And books about B-17s. And um, obviously, you know, a lot of World War II uh, coverage. and um, But Vietnam too. And, and having grown up in that era of, you know, seeing it on TV and such when I was a young kid. I don't really know what got me that interested in, in the military, but I always had at the back of my mind, I was going to be, I was going to go that route. And, um, hence the final decision, you know, of West Point or Annapolis, cause I got appointments that would have allowed me to go to either. And I just decided I didn't want to, you know, float the oceans. I wanted to do things uh, on the ground. So <laughs> that, that's what took me to West Point. But, um, I guess I was kind of, uh, geared to go there in my own head. Uh, no one was particularly pushing me one way or the other, but that's how I ended up going the route that I did and getting, uh, getting there. All right. So I'm a basketball guy. So I want to ask you about your basketball. Cause I kind of figured, um, having met you in person that you're probably a basketball player back in the day. So what was your position? I actually played uh, center at six foot two, but it yep. was because I could out jump six foot eight guys i had uh my vertical jump was awesome in those days wow and it was pretty funny because we had a we had a couple of guys played forward on my team that were you know four or five six inches taller than me yeah <laughs> and i'd line up center and the the other team coaches would look at me and, and it's like what's going on here <laughs> some kind of strange uh way of approaching the, the toss you know you talked about West Point and kind of you had to take a programming class uh, or tech class in 1977. What was it that kind of like flipped a switch for you? Um, it sounds like that was an origin point for you, Ted. So was there, was it the professor? Was it the subject matter? I mean, did something come on? Did you get something to work or were you confounded by a certain problem? Well, then it was... Uh... Probably the subject matter, you know, I had not, uh, you know, back then when you're in junior high and high school, it isn't like today where you've got all this internet of things and all the mobile bases and the gaming and 
on and on and on. Like I have a, a 17 year old son and have watched his trajectory in tech based on what he's walking around in the house in his hand, you know, right. That's uh, basically so far different than, uh, than it was for me. So without that, uh, indoctrination, uh, early indoctrination, even available to me, you know, it would, it would have been the exposure to say Fortran, uh, writing a program, seeing a result. It was interesting. Um, obviously, the, the military academies, all of them are very math heavy in their curriculum and, and the freshman year in particular. So it kind of goes together. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then, uh, there were opportunities to do some projects and things, taking advantage of, uh, stuff they had at the academy that, you know, many other undergrad programs wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't have had access to, which, uh, uh but also a couple of, uh, really strong professors. Uh, particularly in some of those project areas. Like I remember uh, taking a, a course later and I think I was a junior then um, called weapon systems engineering and got to do a really cool project with, you know, looking at uh, weapons design and such. So, you know, that, um, but the, the professor was uh, a person that was really involved and um, he, uh, he kind of drew you in because of his, not just his personality, but, he could express genuine interest in what you were doing too. And I think I've always responded well to that. Hmm. And uh, that probably got me started. But I think hmm. where I really turned the corner and just became, you know, lifelong. The rest of my military active duty time, hey, well, you're doing the mission and you're using tech to do the mission. And that's what's going to be, right? But um, right. When I, when I went to grad school and I started working and we started doing some of these very unique projects I mentioned earlier, which are this chemical demilitarization program, actually solving problems, saved the army hundreds of millions of dollars that three national labs basically told the, the sponsor, the contract owner at the time could not be done. And, you know, I led the team that went out and did it and that was a huge level of satisfaction, you know, professionally and personally came from that and for the whole team. And, uh, it, it, it had legs for a decade or more, you know, wow. we were using these tools we built to do these kinds of problems, uh, that, that it's, this, uh, risk assessment type technology was designed to solve. Um, and, uh, you know, whenever somebody tells you it can't be done, just like in, sports or, you know, other endeavors, you know, you, it kind of uh, motivates you to disprove yeah. that. Right. And, yeah. Uh, there's a, there's an immense uh, satisfaction that comes from that. And the one thing about tech, I think for any, any aspiring uh, technical person is um, it offers more opportunities for that, you know, for you to achieve that kind of a feeling. Um, I, I honestly believe it does, you know, it's, it's more than just winning. It's a lot of times it's doing something that's never been done before. Yeah. And that's, uh, always a, a good, uh, motivator for me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so how long were you in, uh, the army active duty, um, tech? I, I did not do a career. I spent 11 years and, uh, got out uh, for a number of reasons. And, uh, one of them being that I army was not going to, or my branch was not going to send me to grad school and I, and I wanted to go. So, and I also was interested, I mentioned an in, in environmental uh, type career. Mm -hmm. I guess I thought I was going to go out and do great things for, um, you know, for uh, environmental quality somewhere. And, mm -hmm. uh, and that's um, interesting how you think and how it turns out, but <laughs> Yeah, that's that's uh, anyway, that's one of the reasons um, I got out and, and uh, went to grad school right out of the right off active duty. I'd also I was in Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So I had my war. I, I had a company command on a, a big uh, company right after that. All the fun things you kind of do if you well in the army. Right. And mm -hmm. then uh, a lot of years of staff work to look forward to after that. And, you know, you just line up the cards and decide, hey, it's. I'm going to make a change and, you know, drive that. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's interesting. I, I was in the military, as we talked about before. And uh, now that you say that, I, I got, I had the, I was an enlisted guy, but I had the privilege of working with a lot of officers. And um, there's a major who's the XO of our company, second in command of our, um, not our company, our uh, brigade. And uh, he was from South Carolina. And so he and I became friends as much as an E4 and a light colonel can be. And, um, you know, he had just crossed over that 16-year mark. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to ride this out for another four years. But, um, <clears throat> you know, making that shift at about the 10 or 11 or 12-year mark, I saw a lot of people, both enlisted and officer, um, having to make those hard decisions. So um, kudos yeah. to you for uh, for for deciding your path instead of letting somebody else decide it for you. That's good. Oh, believe me, I had plenty of people telling me I was doing the wrong thing, right? <laughs> oh, 20 years and you get a retirement and it's, oh, only, yeah. it's only nine more. I think it was 11 years and seven months is what I did as active duty. And, yeah, you know, parents and, you know, friends oh, yeah. and sure. others and even some mentor types, at least from the army uh, phase. Right. But, uh, you know, I, I, the one thing I've always been, I guess my mom raised me to be um, independent and uh, make my own decisions and make my own way. And I did it, you know, from an early age, just deciding to go off to West Point. At, I was still 17 Yeah. Uh, when I entered, you know, and, and uh, yeah, you, you've got to make those decisions yourself. And, you know, once, once made, I never looked back and great foundation, but never cast any aspersions on my West Point time, my army time. Sure. But when it was time to change, it was time to change. So, I, you know, you yeah. had to change. So speaking of change, so you went to LSU, you got your master's um, environmental uh, toxicology. You mentioned, did I hear that right, that you went to work at IEM very quickly after that? I, I went to work literally as a uh, graduate student at IEM. Still wow. in my... Um, I was in the second semester of my first, uh, very first year okay, in, of the program. And um, at the time, one of the reasons I, I went to work is that graduate school wasn't, didn't give me enough to do. And, you know, we, you know, in the military, you, you can go, go, go. A lot of times you sit around and wait, but I was um, used to working long days and six, seven days a week. And it just was kind of, uh, at that age, I was, I was still, you know, uh, energetic and ready to do it. And then you hit grad school and it's sort of like, this is too slow for me. So I, I, I had, I decided second semester I had to get a job. So I got, I actually got hooked up with IEM via, um, uh, another employee at the time the company was, I think only 15 people at that time. Oh my God. And my uh, major professor uh, happened to know this guy and made the connection. So I, I went to interview and uh, I probably wasn't the standard interviewee for Madhu coming in <laughs> to that. I remember that day I had my, I had my suit on and uh, everyone, and I come into the place and everybody's in t-shirts and Birkenstocks and uh, you know, median age of like, you know, 22 and here's this uh, 32 year old guy, you know, walks in the door. And, um, so it, it kind of even surprised her. She tells that story to a lot of people but, and I can kind of see where she was going. But um, it was it was a, a kind of an instant match. And I, I actually started out part time. And I think within two months I was full time. I just wow. and I decided I could carry the load and the school load at the same time. Yeah, that's what I did. Yeah. It's interesting. So a couple of things there. Uh, one of the themes that we've heard from multiple people that we've talked to, uh, Ted, is uh, relationships. So you had a professor who connected you with somebody um, and then, um, you know, independent thinker and, um, you know, speed at which you work, the cadence. You know, I remember when I got out of the military, I was like, 40 hours a week? Are you really? This is like half stepping, man. It's like, come on, you know? Um, cause I was used to working six, six days a week, six and a half days a week myself. So I, I get that part. So how long have you been with IEM then? Um, 1993, March of 93 is when I joined as that student worker. So, but yeah, it goes wow. that far back. And it's so you going said on 30 joined, years. 
Yeah, I was going to say next year would be 30 years. So you started with about 15 people in the company. How many folks are at IEM today? Um, we're pushing 1,100 now and still uh, growing. I mean, we could foreseeably in the next uh, year's contract work, we could double that number again. Wow. That's amazing. That's yeah, amazing. pretty all organic growth. So, and uh, I guess I'm a builder too, you know, but at heart, I uh, just, um, I used to like going back again when you asked me, well, what made you tick as a kid? I was a tinkerer. And I, mm. I built models, like model ships and stuff, mm -hmm. and planes. Sure. And and then I, I, you know, as I got a little older, I, I worked, I like to work on car motors and just, you know, building and fixing. And But I, I've always liked to build stuff kind of from the ground up. And then you get uh, a chance to do that um, with, uh, with an organization, you know, starting yeah. with, just the smallest of teams. And then you end up, you know, managing a set of teams and then you can become a director of a bunch of those managers and, sure. you know, a, a typical organizational trajectory, but, uh, for me, always on the tech side. So at one point in, in my IEM career, I was a technical director. I had the five, uh, managers that had, um, software modeling and, and science, uh, people under them. We're all under me, and and uh, then I mean, then it was VP of uh, IT and systems engineering, and uh, then I even did a stint as the chief operating officer for a while. But uh, just a lot of a lot of opportunity moving around in the organization. But um, even though the tech core was always there, I think that um, that really helps if you can do that in an organization because the more jobs you have, the more exposure you get, even to the people, you know doing maybe yeah. work well outside your lane or your normal lane is all good experience. You know, it rounds you and, and makes you better able to deliver at a, at a, uh, at a higher scale. I think uh, a lot of CIOs around the country have really been exposed in the last two or three years, partly due to the pandemic, partly due to the economy of um, touching more things outside the stovepipe of technology. And I think that's enhanced a lot of careers and a lot of opportunities for folks um, in companies, large and small. So yeah. um, the ability to kind of grow and shift and move uh, as your organization at IEM has grown is, I'm sure, been great for the organization um, in your service there, but also uh, great for you as far as your learning and uh, understanding how things are moving and how the business really works, which uh, sometimes tech folks don't always understand really how business really works um this understand the tech so kudos to you again on that that's interesting yeah i think that's been one of the challenges for you know the cio shop in particular is uh, being seen as relevant in the business conversation right yep. and what i at least what i read and the ones i talk to these days that there is a shift that has been occurring mm -hmm. and uh even a little more acceptance uh, by the the you know core c staff if you will um you know, to, get, to bring the CIO, CTO, you know, more into the operational conversation because they have to, you know, given the info security and cyber threat and all, oh, uh, all kinds yeah. of other reasons. But, and even the, uh, you know, the IT modernization initiatives where you, if you're really doing migration to the cloud, th that's a, that's a business uh, investment, absolutely, because of the cost. But mm -hmm. you ultimately save, right? Over time, you're going to save a lot of that money. And now you become relevant in the business conversation, partly because you're the only one that really knows what, what that stuff is and can, and hopefully you can explain it in a non-technical terms. Right. But you definitely get drawn into the business conversation because the dollar amounts get big enough for that. And I think that's helped. Um, of those various factors have probably helped with that. But um, yeah, there's there seems to be some excitement about that partnering, that better partnering, uh, at least, you know, my circles of folks I talk with. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think now technology is getting closer and closer to the same footing that finance has. I mean, you can't do things without money one way or the other. And mm -hmm. uh, now you can't do things without tech uh, one way or the other. Let's uh, switch gears for a second. Um, you, you mentioned your mom, you mentioned a professor. Um, tell me about some of your mentors, some of your influences when you were growing up, Ted. I think they tended to be before uh, college, uh, they were probably coaches. Mm -hmm. 
I, and I had good ones and bad ones, actually. <laughs> but the good ones, um, you know, were the ones that showed interest in, you know, in you as a person and an athlete, you know, they, they were engaged and, uh, and then they would try to, uh, coach and teach, but they, I guess do it in a way that wasn't like, you know, sitting on your grandfather's knee and having them tell you how it was in, in the old days, you know? So right. there's, it's, there's a different kind of messaging that, uh, has always attracted me, but, um, you know, and, and those were shorter lived mentoring engagements, obviously, because you're, you know, you move through school pretty quick and then, mm. then it's done, you know, and, uh, and you move on. Um, once I got to, uh, West Point, um, there were a couple of these professors and I would say in graduate school, no different. So in the academic time, it were, it were, it was the professors that, um, were engaged with me in a similar way. Mm-hmm. showed interest in some I was interested in didn't not just there to feel like, you know, um, they had to put their hour in and, you know, see you next week. So, and I, I've always responded pretty negatively to those kinds of, uh, folks in the academic world, but that's, that's me, you know, everybody may be a little different there, but, um, you know, in the military, it's pretty easy. You'll have some officers, uh, senior officers that are just, uh, true role models and mm. tend to fall in behind them and you listen and you, you learn a lot. You still keep your mouth shut a lot more than you keep, than you keep, uh, you know, talking and that, you know, you're going to get a lot more out of that. So I don't think there's anything particularly unique about those kinds of mentors, but, uh, and then I'd have to credit my, you know, ultimately my uh, boss still today, Madhu, who, like I said, brought, um, did a lot to help bring emergency management out of the stone age into, you know, uh, use of technology as a standard, which is more of the case today. How did you ascend from a part-time worker at IEM as a grad student, quickly a full-time worker to some of the leadership roles? How did, how did those things happen? Can you tell us some stories or tell us how uh, Ted went from, you know, grad student, part-time guy to, uh, some of the cool things you've been able to do at the company now? I think what I realized early, and it was probably just in my first year, literally, at, at IEM, um, it's that uh, we had a lot of smart people. We knew we had potential to do some really good products. But uh, what was absent at the time, a brand new you know, company, it was a small disadvantaged business, it, and, uh, you know, entrepreneur just getting started out, you know, all the, all, all, a lot of factors common with a lot of uh, companies today, Th- there needed to be a task leader. Mm. And I guess from, I guess my army, uh, experience, you know, definitely influenced the thinking there, but, you know, I, I basically kind of led the charge and said, we've got to have a little more structure and, um, have a task lead. You know, we actually established that right then and there as the term. We still use it today. Um, but, uh, you know, when I went to see the boss and, and kind of laid this out for her, she said, so you're volunteering to be our first task lead then. And, you know, I said, oh, I, I don't, that's not why I came in to talk to you. But <laughs> I guess if, if you need someone to do it, you know, not that I wanted it, I, I can do it. I was, you know, I was confident I could. And it was to bring a lot of just basic, you know, leadership principles in. Where I had to learn in the experience was how to adapt that to tech leader, because mm-hmm. it's different. Mm-hmm. The, the people you deal with are are different. Quite honestly, um, they don't respond to command and control like a military model um, well at all, uh, from my experience. And they're very bright, and they have a lot of independent thought, and. Uh, you know, there are egos and then there are just, you know, simple, they, they want their voice heard. Um, sure. A spectrum probably of that, right? And uh, so what I had to learn is, you know, how to how to deal in a leadership role with those things. But it helps, you know, when you're working to solve a problem and you got your sleeves rolled up and you're working too, uh, you can establish a little more credibility that way with the, with the group and 
once uh, once you're beyond just conversational with people, I think uh, then you can start bringing in some of those principles, some of those things that even uh, from you know the, the leadership training I'd had and experience I'd had implementing it um, in the military became more relevant. But I couldn't mm-hmm. start out that way, you know, because uh, like I said, command and control does not work with tech people. So I, that's how it started. I, I guess, you know, I, I was the task lead. And at some point I became, uh, you know, the, the trainer mentor of other task leads and uh, just built the foundation of that uh, tech leader cadre uh, in IEM as we grew, you know, from the ground up. And that's important because as you scale, the th- one of the first things that often fails is you don't have enough of those tech leaders in the organization. You get a whole lot more tech resources and then your tech leader becomes, or lead, you know, a few leaders become overloaded. And, uh, you know, I've seen that happen in many organizations. So, mm-hmm. um, we did it right, I guess, from that perspective and, um, whether, you, whether you just call it serendipity or it wasn't by design that <laughs> I just, you know, I was the one that led the charge at IEM, but, uh, that, yeah. that was kind of the start of it. And I think the other thing was um, really turned the corner um, was when your peer group of these technical people start pushing you forward for things like, can you, you should go do this uh, talk presentation or, you know, it, it isn't just because they're trying to hide behind you or, you know, they don't want to do it. It's like, they, they think you're the best person to carry the water. And then, you know, and then, you know, you've turned a corner, you've got some uh, uh, ability to influence and that helps a lot too. How many folks are in the technology group at IEM now, Ted, roughly? About uh, 200 at roughly 20% of the workforce. What's one of your proudest professional accomplishments so far? Oh, I think it was the one I mentioned as we, we built this, um, this uh, distributed simulation called QEM, Quantitative Emergency Management, which was an extremely complex um, set of tools, really, that would do what I'd like to call re- uh, resource acquisition problems. It's you have a program, you have X amount of funding. You know, in other words, you don't have unlimited budget, and you're and you're supposed to be protecting people. You can use a lot of different things to do that people tend to jump to the material solutions right to buy stuff mm-hmm. you know in in the context of the emergency management um in and the, the chemical stockpile emergency preparedness program which was what actually funded this work it was uh, alert notification systems and mm. uh, detectors and um shelter in place in congregate shelter in place, you know, positive pressure uh, protection systems. Um, some of it using newer technologies and such. And so, but when, you know, the, the mistake a lot of organizations make, you know, public sector um, organizations in particular is they'll buy, they jump right to buying stuff. Sure. And stuff is tends to be the most expensive um, part of the solution. So in that limited budget, you burn the budget quickly buying stuff. Then the question is, though, the question we wanted to ask is, does did the stuff make a difference? Mm-hmm. And because a lot of times it doesn't. And so we built this whole uh, uh, simulation tool set to to go at that question specifically. But it was um, it was complex from the standpoint of uh, used uh, started with using probabilistic risk assessment techniques from the uh, nuclear industry. After Three Mile Island, you know, they were all required to do these called PRAs and very, very detailed engineering level uh, probabilistic risk assessments. And uh, out of that comes a, a threat deck or, you know, I tend to refer to it as, but it's a it's a big list of possible upsets that can happen with different degrees of consequences. <laughs> Um, depend, you know, with different probabilities. And then you have real weather in a place that can, um, which is obviously, obviously uh, probabilistic. And then 
you've got the response of a population when something happens, which isn't when you send out an evacuation order or you, or you turn the sirens on. You know, there you can't have the expectation everyone's just going to immediately get in their car you're at, with all of you know kids, dogs, and whatever else, and and get on the road at the same time. It, there, there, it's really a set of overlapping distributions of things, right? So, mm. anyway, we we codified all of that in uh, in a pretty novel way and produced a you know a, a simulation result that would actually score in terms of the risk avoided, if you will. Um, mm. In this case, risk was fatality of a, of the citizen, of a citizen, you know, or a worker on the, on these, uh, at these kind of chemical activity locations. So, um, part of it was so cool to build just because of what I described. And it was, uh, there wasn't anything out there to do that. And then the fact that our government, um, sponsor told us after the fact, actually, that they had gone to three different national labs who who heavily supported these programs in different ways as well, um, that they wanted something like this. And they had told them it's impossible, too many variables, too complicated. And so we just said, we can build this. And I got a team together who I guess um, I convinced we could build this and we built it. And uh, we worked, it was like one of those day and night projects. And uh, you really, you know, you just built a lot of, a uh, lot of, uh, a lot of bonding, a lot of camaraderie sure. and getting the, to the technical result. And then, um, some of the first results we had, you know, to that, to that client were you know, revolutionary. And then we had to switch to, you know, realizing that the soft post community, these were county emergency management agencies and, you know, the, um, the baseline education level was probably was probably not even high school graduate, right? And certainly not computer um, analytics savvy, you know, people, right? And uh, communicating those technical results to the non-technical audience then became the next step. And we probably spent at the at the end of uh, several years of engagement with this, I would say we spent more time on the on the second thing than we did on building the the tools in the first place. Really? But it absolutely was required. And that's why I'm a strong believer in um, the best rounded uh, technical resource person has the ability to communicate technical stuff to a non-technical audience. Oh, absolutely so essential. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. But that's, that was what I was most proud of. We did it. It, like I said, had a, you know, 10 plus year run and literally by, not by our computation by the armies uh, saved hundreds of millions of dollars in program funds, That's not amazing. spending stuff on, on frivolous protective stuff that wasn't going to make a difference. Right. And that's, uh, I think that was my, my shining uh, moment was because I would go out and do all the presentations and stuff too. And, uh, you get, you obviously, um, I've got bias cause you build a lot of ownership when you do that. How big was your team to build that initial simulation? How many folks were on that group? Uh, 10 or 12 people. And uh, it, it wasn't all just programmers. It was scientists. Like we had an atmospheric physicist for the the transport and diffusion modeling. We had um, statistician. We had nuclear engineer who, because we needed somebody that knew that PRA world. And we actually had two. Um, but a number of the core, the core developers were all, uh, C plus plus programmers. And how long did it take you to build that simulation? You said it was day and night project. Three months. Um, yeah, Three those months. are, I've been on several of those projects and those are super fun projects. They're exhausting, but they're really fun and you can build, uh, deep camaraderie if you have a good team and you have a clear mission and, um, you know, it's the closest thing to the military being on a sports team that I've ever experienced in a professional setting is being on something like that because yep. you have a defined goal and you're just, it's almost like a campaign. You're just going after it. It doesn't matter, you know, day or time or whatever. You just got to get it done. So that's cool. Yeah. What are your best guesses, Ted? I mean, you've seen a lot of things uh, from your time at West Point up to and through today. What are your best guesses for where technology is going? What does the future of tech look like? Uh, I say the future remains bright. 
you know, it's like, think about it this way. Um, 10 years ago, would you have contemplated a smart home system? You know, no. now a couple hundred bucks and you implement a pretty good start with the only interface being your smartphone, right? And an internet connection, of course. You know, so tech is the only thing that could have gotten us there. There's so many examples, you know, the big gut with the big examples, Google, Twitter, Facebook, you know, all changed the way we live mm -hmm. to a degree, right? And then mm -hmm. Amazon, oh my God, you know, I think I I must work for them as an honorary employee or something. I buy so much <laughs> that way, but that's, uh, there's still a lot more to come and there's, you know, disruptive change is not a bad thing. And if, if anybody thought so, I'd hold up any of those examples to say that they're wrong, right? And so um, what's exciting is uh, as these things change, even if it's similar type of uh, delivery for or, or function, it may be done in a totally different way. So, you know, I'm, I'm really uh, looking forward to seeing holographic presentation projectors, things of that nature. I don't, there's some of these things are not that far down the road, you know, and, yeah. and I, once it gets in your blood, you can't wait to see them. And then I've always been one that wants to buy the first, you know, iteration coming out too, and just, just to test it. And, uh, yeah. you know, the advantage of, I guess, being in a larger company is in, in a position, I can actually do that, you know, on the company nickel sometimes, which, <laughs> which helps. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, with a legitimate use in mind for it, obviously, but I think we're going to be in good shape. Now you can look at little market reactions and things like, uh, you know, these same big guys I mentioned laying off employees now and everything. A lot of that I think was COVID effect. Mm -hmm. Um, they staffed up because of the, you know, because of COVID and demand, mm -hmm. um, that COVID produced in, in, uh, people staying home. And then, uh, you know, COVID's over now. So, you know, for in people's minds, most people's minds, I think. So it's, uh, yeah, you, 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 you're a business. At the end of the day, people have to understand that even with tech, there's still business implications. Absolutely. Some businesses making the tech that you're using, you know, contemplating, and they have to stay in business and many don't. Um, but the ones that do are also at least mind the business store as well so those things are going to happen but the trajectory of tech and new tech is not going to be affected by that in my opinion you know yeah things will go up and down um, a company like ours can even look at some of these uh you know kind of market effects as an advantage right and there's a lot of good and in, in your business you <laughs> probably see this too there's going to be a lot of good talent on the street to go yeah. mine potentially and uh yeah I don't, I don't, I don't want to take away from people losing their jobs or anything, but uh, hopefully they'll find good places to land because there's a lot of folks still looking. Yeah. I think there's a lot of good talent that's available, but there's also a lot of need. So that's a good, good thing. Let me ask you, um, you talked about being an avid reader and obviously you're in, uh, intentionally curious and I respect that. Uh, what are you? What are you listening to? What are you reading now? Uh, what's informing Ted as he uh, goes about his uh, weekly schedule? Yeah, honestly, um, I'm not a big podcast guy. Uh, mm -hmm. like maybe it's just that I spend so many time, so much time in virtual meeting space that I, you know, I just I can't get myself to go spend half sure. hour watching the screen again. Sure. Um, so, but I do, I do read and. Uh, you know, some, some of the recent tech books uh, I could call out um, that I really think are awesome. Age of AI, Henry mm -hmm. Kissinger, uh, Schmidt, and um, Huttenlopper, if I pronounce that right. That is, that's a tremendous book because it, it's, uh, you think about, these are some of the big thinkers of our time, really. And they go way back, obviously, Henry Kissinger, um, for sure. And uh, their perspective on, on coexistence with AI in the world today is a very unique one because it's not written by the guys trying to push the envelope with AI, the tech guys, that, that extreme mm -hmm. tech people. It's these are these are you know more politically world events oriented people seeing you know and so that's a, that's an interesting perspective. There's a, there's a book called Communicating with Data by uh, Carl uh, Alchin. Mm -hmm. He's 
it's it's all about how do you communicate to non again non technical audience you know the the insights that come from data data analytics. This and I I believe strongly very strongly and a lot of it goes back to that QEM thing talking about how much how much time we spend on communication versus even just cranking the crank right. But one of the most important things for a tech practitioner to learn is to do that effectively. You've, you know, you've got to be able to communicate to the non-technical audience and, and still, you know, and still paint an effective uh, picture of what you're trying to tell them. So that book yeah. is really a lot about that. Um, I, you know, I've read a lot of other books like that over the years, uh, like uh, visual display of quantitative information is one of the, Tufty, that's one of the iconic ones, right, from way mm -hmm. back. Um, but but I would encourage anybody seeking uh, seeking a tech career, get that in their uh, in their DNA as quick as possible, as as uh, and then do read some of those um, those kind of resources for that. And um, there's another one uh, I recently picked up, hadn't even finished. Is Everybody Wants to Rule the World by uh, Ray Wang and uh, yeah. Interesting, the uh, you know the uh, Feldman, the uh, city of Asheville, CIO here in North Carolina, mm -hmm. um, recommended that uh, that book strongly, and that's why I picked it up. But um, it seemed to be a good uh, a good play on where uh, tech is going and, and how societally you have to match up. I'll uh, make sure that we get that in the show notes for our listeners to take a look at and. Ted, as we wrap up, how can we learn more about you and your work and IEM, the company? First uh, order would be the, our website. It's pretty comprehensive. Um, we're constantly updating it. Matter of fact, we're going we're going through a, another uh, re-engineering of the IEM Digital. That's what we call our tech arm. Um, you know, uh, right now that should be that new content should be up there. Not too distant future. But uh, we do also participate in a lot of uh, uh, symposia and, and uh, speaking engagements and things, the conferences, um, to include the tech ones. We've been spending a lot of time in the low-code circuit uh, mm -hmm. lately. And then, you know, our, C our CEO, Madhu, uh, spoke last year at uh, the uh, North Carolina Tech uh, Women in Tech. Uh, she was the plenary speaker. We do a pretty good job on social media announcing these things ahead of time and such. So, um, and then LinkedIn, you know, kind of awesome. um, in, engagement with some of our, our leadership will post up there too. So if you, if you follow a couple of our, uh, our folks or just keep an eye on those links, you know, to those media, IM media sites, um, it'll, it'll at least roadmap where some of these things are occurring. And then if there's interest you can always, you know, a lot, and even today, a lot of those things you can attend remotely too. You don't have to go mm. in person. So it gives uh, people a cost-effective way to keep up too. Yeah, that's, that's very true. It's a really cool uh, feature that a lot of uh, groups and organizations and meetings are incorporating nowadays. So it makes it accessible to everybody. So, well, Ted Lemke, I, I greatly appreciate your time and your interest and, um, all the insight and uh, just great background that you've given our uh, listeners today. So I just want to say uh, from all of us here at Tech Leaders Talk Podcast, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Barry. Thanks for joining us today on the Tech Leaders Talk Podcast. Until next time, tech leaders, keep talking.